Uh, we're going to continue our Faith Works series this morning. Unfortunately, we do not have the words up on the screen this morning. That is my fault. I apologize for that, but all the more reason to uh, grab your Bibles uh, or look up the passage on your phone. Um, James chapter 5, uh, we'll be reading verses 7 through 11 uh, this morning. What I'd like to do is go ahead and read uh, the passage in its entirety, uh, and then I'll pray and we'll begin to study. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we lift up our time to you now as we study your word. We pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would reveal in us what we need to know, what you are teaching. Uh, Lord, I pray that our eyes would be turned to you and our hearts would be turned to you, Father, as we study. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Business is war. It's dog-eat-dog, rat-eat-rat. If my competitor were drowning, I'd walk right over and stick a hose right in his mouth. This is a quote from Ray Kroc. If you don't know who Ray Kroc is, Ray Kroc is recognized as the founder of the mega fast food chain McDonald's. Um, This year a movie was released called The Founder, uh, and it tells the story of Ray Kroc, who starred by Michael Keaton as the business mogul. Um, It tells about how Ray Kroc took a tiny business model and transformed it into the most successful food chain of all time. Um, In 1955, during his time as a milkshake mixer salesman, um, Ray Kroc met Maurice and Richard McDonald. Donald, uh, who ran a tiny food stand in San Ber- uh, Bernardino, California. Croc, who had been in over a thousand different kitchens during his time as a salesman, um, recognized and was so impressed with their food stand that he called it the best operation he had ever seen. Um, he convinced the McDonald brothers to franchise their restaurant, which was a business adventure that he decided he would be willing to take on back in Chicago, Illinois area. Uh, within six years, Croc opened up 100 different stores under the name of McDonald's. As part of the original franchising agreement, um, in the contract, uh, Ray Kroc was r- required to get permission from Richard and Maurice McDonald for any changes that he wanted to make to anything. Well, after several years of requesting changes or um, suggesting changes and them turning him down, he grew frustrated. And so Ray Kroc decided he was going to take the initiative to start making changes on his own without the approval of the McDonald brothers. 
Now, this obviously infuriated the brothers. It was a breach of contract, uh, and they even threatened to sue him. However, even they knew that uh, Croc had grown too big to fail. Um, they, they could try and sue him, and they would probably win, but the, the legal fees alone they, they wouldn't be able to afford. And so they knew uh, just quite the dilemma that they were in if they tried to pursue a lawsuit. Um, in 1961, Croc had grown tired of this as well, and uh, so he decided to buy the rights to the McDonald's name. And as part of the original sales agreement in 1961, uh, there was an agreement that 1% of the profit would go to the McDonald brothers and their families thereafter. Uh, at the negotiating table, Croc told them that he would agree to the sales agreement on the condition that the 1% of royalties that they would be owed would be out of the contract and it would be based on a handshake agreement. He promised them that they would get their money. Never being able to prove the handshake agreement, the McDonald brothers never saw a single penny of those royalties. Today... Those royalties, those profits would equal $100 million a year. There's this rather depressing scene in the movie right after the settlement where Croc is in the restroom with Dick McDonald. And uh, this is what he says. He says, I remember the first time I saw that name stretched across your stand out there. It was love at first sight. I knew right then and there that I had to have it. And now I do. Obviously disgruntled, Dick McDonald looked at him and he said, you, very angrily, you don't have it. You don't have my name. And Croc kind of snickers and says, are you sure about that? The very next scene, we get this depressing look as an attorney is standing with the McDonald brothers outside of their food stand that they had been running for several decades, explaining to them that their food stand could never, uh, could no longer carry the name McDonald's or any variation of it. And we see the brothers look up at their food stand as their own name is being torn off of their building. I, I, when, as I was watching this, I, I just grew infuriated. I, I, I was so upset with the injustice that took place. The movie made me never want to eat McDonald's again as, as I'm watching this thing. I wanted to see vindication. I wanted to see justice, right? And I think this is part of who we are as human beings. We get a sheer thrill at seeing the bad guy get what's coming to him. Right? We, we revel in the fact that, uh, justice is gonna be served and the bad guy is gonna get, get what he deserves, right? But if we're honest with ourselves, as we observe, uh, a broken and fallen world, it seems like the bad guy wins more times than not. It seems like we're in a world filled, full of injustice. Feels like it's always around us. And so how do we respond to this? How do we especially respond when we are recipients of such injustice? Well, this is exactly what James uh, expresses, actually, and addresses in the passage that we read a moment ago. Um, you'll see in your Bibles that oftentimes, in order to break up passages or ideas, the text will include um, a heading of some sort. In our case, the heading this morning it reads, Patience and Suffering. 
Uh, we have to remember that those headings are not inspired by God. Uh, they weren't in the original text. They were added later to help us out. And uh, a lot of times they do help us with ideas, but sometimes they can serve as a detriment, I believe. Uh, and in our case, it actually, I, I believe, serves as a detriment. Um, because when we read the heading, Patience and Suffering, it would be easy to assume that uh, the suffering take, takes place uh, is a very broad type of suffering. Uh, that it addresses all kinds of different suffering that we could face. However, um, James is referring to a very specific kind of suffering. Um, our passage this morning that we read is actually linked to the first six verses that Pastor Mark preached on last week. Right? There, 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 there shouldn't be a break there. It's actually a continuing thought in the sense that um, James in the first six verses is sharply rebuking rich oppressors. And then he transitions uh, on the same subject matter to comfort and instruct the, the people that the rich people were, were oppressing. Right? And so if you were to look at what is that exactly going on and what kind of suffering are we dealing with, you can actually look at it in verse 4. Uh, chapter 5, verse 4, take a look at it. He says, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. This is what these rich landowners were doing. They would hire men out to come and work the fields. Uh, and in back then, it was common to pay the workers their daily rate at the end of the day. Well, once the day was over, you would pay them the daily rate. And apparently what was going on was these workers would come and these rich landowners would either um, withhold payment altogether and say, we'll pay you tomorrow or we'll pay you the next day, or they wouldn't pay them all of the wages. They would only pay them some of the wages. Now, these people who worked in the fields were dependent on this income from a day-to-day basis. And so we've got this rich landowner who doesn't need the, the money by any sense of the means, but is defrauding them. He's taking it back by deception, by greed. His greed is fueling him, and, and he is actively oppressing these people. And James uh, had a fit about this in the first six verses, and he rebukes them. And then once again in verse 7, he turns his attention to those uh, that are experiencing in justice. And so James, when he talks about suffering in this passage, is referring specifically to the suffering that we experience when we face injustice. I believe that James, um, although he is uh, addressing this specific issue of monetary injustice, I believe that we can actually expand this and it's applicable to any kind of injustice that is occurring. And so, as we observe the cultural climate of 2017 America, I can't think of a more timely passage to study, especially given the recent events that have happened in the last couple of weeks. Let me say that the the protest that occurred last week in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, and the events that surround it are absolutely disgraceful, and appalling. Let me be perfectly clear that this alt-right movement of white supremacy is in direct contradiction with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Racism of any kind from any person or group is evil, it's divisive, and it's flat-out demonic. And frankly, I am absolutely sick of the people who are trying to connect it to the gospel of Jesus Christ, as some have attempted to do. 
scripture teaches us that humans have value not based on uh, the color of their skin, but based on the fact that we are created in the image of God. Scripture also teaches that when all is said and done, and we are enjoying our time in heaven as Christ followers, that there will be a multitude of people represented from every people, every place, every tribe, every language. They're all going to be there. Matt Chandler is a pastor in Texas, addressed the same issue. And I loved what he said. He said, heaven, because of its diversity, is going to be a white supremacist's hell. It's true. And so, given the fact that injustice still occurs, we have a text before us that was written uh, just under 2,000 years ago that still stands relevant and applicable to today. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian from the World War II era, says that we don't need to make the Bible relevant uh, because its relevant its relevance is axiomatic, meaning that it's self-evident. It's obvious. Its relevance is obvious. And so in light of that, we actually don't need to defend God's word uh, as being relevant. We just merely need to testify to it. We just need to present it. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to testify to the fact that the Bible is still relevant, that there are still people, and Christians especially, that are on the receiving end of persecution. And so how do we respond? What do we do in such times? I think there's typically two responses uh, that, that you will find. The first one is one of outrage, one of sheer outrage to the point where we wish revenge on the person oppressing us, to, to the point where we try to enact revenge on the person. We, we physically take it out. We want to, take, we want to be the, the avenger, and we physically uh, take, seek out revenge on the person physically and, and violently. Um, that's the first response I think I see a lot. Um, we get back at them for what they've done to us. A second typical response is actually on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, and it's just to give up in despair because we're hopeless. We might as well just give in because, you know, they're too rich, they're too powerful, they're too influential, we have no, no, no chance, so this is, this is it. There's no hope for vindication. This is life. This is, it is what it is, and we're just going to roll over and let them do what they're going to do to us, right? Um, while it's tempting to react in one of these two ways, I would actually say that both are an error. And instead, we should do what James calls us to do. James offers a different solution. He says that in the face of injustice, in the face of suffering, we are called to be patient. What an interesting idea. Biblical scholars will claim that this word for patient actually doesn't describe um, enduring a difficult circumstance, but rather enduring a difficult person. Is what this in, in patience we are diff- enduring difficult people. And I know that the Bible is relevant because you probably just thought of somebody right, in your life as a difficult person. Um, one commentator describes that this word patience has two nuances. The, the first one is to not grow overly zealous to the point where you are actually enacting violence. Because the moment that you become violent, the, the moment that you actually seek out revenge, you are now, first of all, no longer being patient, but you are also now in the wrong as soon as you take it out that way. So be patient. Don't get, don't get so riled up to the fact uh, that, that you actually seek out violence. The second nuance, though, of being patient is this idea of just not rolling over. 
Um, there is plenty of room to prophetically denounce injustice and promote the fair treatment of, of, of all people, especially the oppressed. This is what James did in the first six verses. He, he prophetically denounced these rich oppressors. Um, and, and this is what we ought to do. Although we're not taking out revenge on somebody, we're not just going to roll over. There is room to call out evil for what it is, Right? The commentator would call this, it is a militant patience. And it's a rather radical idea. And you, you may be sitting here thinking, why should I be patient? You don't know the type of suffering that I've experienced in my life. How can you tell me to be patient? On what basis do you have to be patient? Why should I be patient? And James answers the question, why are we patient in the face of suffering? Why are we patient? How can we be patient in the midst of suffering at the hands of another person? Well, it's because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming back. This is the ultimate hope of the believer. It's the ultimate hope of the believer. And while the events surrounding the coming, the second coming of Jesus are hotly debated, it's one, it's one of the most hotly debated topics um, there are some things, believe it or not, that all believers agree on when it comes to Christ's return. And all believers believe them because Scripture so blatantly affirms them. And one of these things that Scripture blatantly affirms is that when Christ comes back, all sin and all evil will be abolished and justice will be vindicated. When Jesus comes back, all things will be made right. Verse 8 tells us to establish our hearts or to strengthen our hearts because of the coming of the Lord. This means be committed, be patient, be so committed to the cause of Christ and staying the course uh, no matter how hard the trial is. When the heat on your persecution gets turned up, cling to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, all things will be made right. Plant your feet strong in the fact that he's coming back. Don't retaliate. When I was a kid, um, I always felt the need to defend myself. And when I felt like there was an injustice done to me, as, as much injustice can be done to like a fifth grade kid, um, I, I felt like uh, not only did I have to be right, everybody else needed to know that I was right. It wasn't enough that I was right. Everybody needed to know that I was right. And so I would always seek to defend myself. And every single time, my mother would always tell me that I needed to stand down because Jesus is your defense. Now, as a kid, I never understood what that meant until the day I truly understood that Jesus was coming back. Because what my mother was teaching me in those moments was that in the face of injustice done against us, we don't need to defend ourselves because our defense was won at the cross and our victory will be delivered at Christ's return. We don't need to defend ourselves because Jesus is defending us uh, on our behalf. And he's going to do it when he comes back. Paul reminds us on this idea of not taking revenge or not taking vengeance. In, in, in Romans twelve nineteen. he says, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus is promising to repay evil for what it is due. And so can you imagine 
the thoughts they are going to run through the minds of those people that have persecuted us as Christians the day that Jesus comes back? Can you imagine the faces of people that are killing Christians today the day that they come face to face with Jesus Christ? It's a day that we can look forward to. There will be a day when we are vindicated, and there will be a day when justice is served. We can revel in the fact that while we're persecuted and oppressed and even harassed now, there's going to be a day when all things are going to be made right. And while our suffering as Christians can be severe, having the hope of Christ's return should give us great comfort. Because in the end, we know we win. There's a, there's a great illustration that a former pastor of mine would always use to describe this idea of finding comfort in, in Christ's return. It's stuck with me for many, many years, uh, and I'd like to share it. It's extremely appropriate with football season upon us. Um, so imagine, if you will, a purely hypothetical scenario where the Cleveland Browns beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> This is the scenario because I'm a Cleveland fan and I have the microphone. Okay? <laughs> Let's say I wasn't able to watch the game live, so I recorded it on a DVR. And I decide I'm going to go back and watch the game later. Well, in the meantime, before I start watching the game, somebody spoils it for me. You know, one of my buddies calls me up and says, Mike, you wouldn't believe it. The Browns, in historic fashion, in a dramatic win, beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. I like the way that sounds. Right? I'm going to keep saying it. Um, the ending has been ruined for me. I know that we win. But now, when I go and watch this football game, I'm watching it with a different perspective because I know we win. All of a sudden, now the interceptions, the fumbles, the penalties, the boneheaded mistakes that the Browns seem to always make don't pack as much of a punch anymore because I know at the end of the day we win. This is true of the believer. When we face oppression and suffering, it's lost some of its sting because in the end we win. James goes on to explain what this patience looks like in more detail uh, using three examples or illustrations, and we'll go ahead and just walk through them briefly with the remaining of our time. Um, What does this patience look like? Uh, the The first illustration is that of a farmer. Uh, you'll see that the farmer toils, he labors, he sweats. And what is he waiting for? He's waiting for the harvest to come. He, he's waiting for the, the crops, the precious crops, they're called. Right? But you'll, you'll also notice in there, uh, in, in verse 7, that not only is he waiting for the harvest, he's also waiting for something else. Did you notice this? He's, he's waiting for the early and the late rains to come. Because he knows that without these rains, without this water, he is utterly hopeless. Ultimately, the farmer is dependent on something completely out of his control. I think it causes us great displeasure when we have to wait on something that is not in our control. And the longer that we go without an answer or any visual sign that God is actually doing something makes us really, really antsy. 
And so we start to squirm in discomfort. And we decide, you know, maybe we ought to just take matters into our own hands. We lie to ourselves and say, well, God obviously isn't doing something about it, so I've got to do it myself. And we grow impatient. James would say, this is the last thing that you should do. This is a terrible mistake. It's been said that an impatient Christian is a powerful weapon in the hands of the devil. Think about some Old Testament examples. Moses was impatient in regards to God's promises and decided to take delivering Israel out of Egypt into his own hands, and it turned him into a murderer. Abraham was impatient concerning God's promises that he would have offspring with his wife, decided to take matters into his own hands, which led to the birth of Ishmael which led to an entire generation of people, an entire nation of people that actively opposed the Jews. You see, when we grow impatient and we try and take matters into our own hands, what's really happening in our hearts is a lack of trust in God. We're, we're, telling, we're telling God that we don't believe that he is who he said he is and will do what he said he will do. To be patient in suffering, in the most basic sense, is to trust in God. And so the farmer waits for the rain that's outside of his control, and we wait on God and trust that one day Christ will return, our ultimate hope. And just as the farmer reaps the precious, precious harvest, we reap the precious reward that comes with Christ's return. The second example James mentions is that of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James doesn't give us a specific prophet because, frankly, um, it's consistent in the New Testament that all the prophets were persecuted. It was just known that the prophets were persecuted. Acts 7.52, this is what Acts 7.52 says. It says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Matthew 5, uh, verse 11 and 12, this is Jesus speaking. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. An interesting distinction is made by James that it's not just the prophets, but the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. It's almost as if James is is connecting the fact that because the prophets spoke in the name of the Lord, they were persecuted. This was the reason that they were persecuted. James is suggesting that following God will often lead to suffering. And this is consistent with what Jesus himself spoke about. John 15, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and this is what he says. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You were of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What we learn here is that persecution and following Jesus goes hand in hand. You you can't have one without the other. It comes with the territory. 
And this is why we have to be careful as a church, a universal church, to kind of be caught up in political rhetoric, as it were. Um, because as with the prophets, yes, we are given a freedom and a charge to call out injustice, to speak out against it, and I think we should. But we also have to understand that there will not be a day that goes by until Christ's return that the church is not persecuted. This is fact. The church will always be at odds with the world. The prophets were persecuted. The apostles were persecuted. Many generations of believers have been persecuted. And Christians this very day are still being persecuted. And I'm not talking about a persecution that, well, we get made fun of. No, there are Christians that are dying because of their stand for Christ. That's the type of persecution that we're still facing and we will face until Christ returns. This is all the more reason that we take James's exhortation to be patient more seriously. Finally, James draws our attention to a third example, the steadfastness of Job. Job is an Old Testament book of the Bible that recounts the story of Job, a man by the name of Job, uh, who he was handpicked by God to be tormented by the devil. You think you're having a bad day? Yeah. And so, and so the whole premise of Job is, is that the devil looked at Job. Job was an incredibly powerful man, incredibly wealthy, incredibly influential, but he was also incredibly holy. And the devil looked at Job and said, the only reason he follows you, God, the only reason he praises you is because you've blessed him with so much. You've given him all these things. So what's going to happen when I take that all, all away? And God says, well, let's see what happened. I give you permission to... Have at it with Job. And so within days, Job loses his business. He loses his workers. He loses over 10,000 livestock. He loses money. He loses his children. He loses his health. Incidentally, the only thing that Satan let him keep was a nagging wife. And there may have been times where that was more of a punishment for Job. Right? You see, what James wants us to reflect on is that while Job is suffering... God is in the background doing something. While Job is suffering and he doesn't know all the answers, God has a purpose. God has a result. God is in control. And we we know what that purpose is. We see the end result at the end of of the book of Job. So the whole book of Job, he loses everything. And then most of the book is is him communicating with with some uh, three bozo friends of his and his wife and uh, him communicating with God, asking God what what he did or what's going on. And and God actually replying to him. It's just this discourse that happens for the most. for for most of the book of Job. And then in Job 42, we see the end result. Verse 10 and the beginning of verse 12 in Job 42, it says that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. We see that God not only restored Job's fortunes, but he increased them twofold. The outcome or purpose, as James calls it, of God's dealings with Job is that God is in the business of restoring people. God is in the business of restoring things. And this should provide much hope for all who patiently endure suffering. Um, When Christ comes, 
not only will we be restored, but we will be blessed beyond imaginable belief. We will be given an inheritance that is far better than anything that we could ever attain here on earth. And so while you may be suffering at the hands of another person right now, and while God may not restore you today and he may not restore you tomorrow, there will come a time at Christ's return where you will be restored. And I want you to hold fast to that fact. I'm reminded of Romans 8 when Paul writes that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In our suffering, it's really easy to believe the lie that God doesn't care, that he's not there, that he's not doing anything. But let me encourage you that if you are a Christ follower, if your hope and faith and trust is in Jesus, God is for you. God is on your side. Jesus fights on your behalf, so much so that he took radical measures by dying on the cross so that you could be restored in your relationship with God. That's how much he loves you, and that's how much he cares. And so, we can either focus on ourselves and our own suffering and on today and only what I can see and nobody understands and this is me and this is what I'm going through and this is what I'm dealing with and you will live a miserable life. Or you can remind yourself of the indisputable truth that God is full of compassion and mercy. And this compassion and mercy is most evidently displayed on the cross. In John 15 and 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's explaining to them of the the, the pain and the suffering and the trouble that they're going to go through. And he tells them, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. I was sitting there, Jesus, you want me to have peace? You you just told me about all this trouble that we're going to go through and you want me to have peace? What do you mean by that? He said, I've told you these things so that you may have peace in me. For you will face troubles in this world. In this world, you will face troubles. You will face tribulation. But behold, I have overcome the world. Within 24 hours of telling his disciples that he would go to the cross and die an excruciatingly painful death. And three days later, he would come out of the grave. And when he conquered death, what Jesus is saying is not only have I conquered death itself, but I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world on your behalf. And so, yes, Jesus did die for our sin. Absolutely, 100%, he died for our sin. But he also died for your pain. He died for your suffering. He died for your hurt. He died for your injustice that you've experienced. And when he rose from the dead, he overcame it all. So that everybody who attaches themselves to Christ, who puts their faith and hope in Christ, can in turn overcome it all as well.